De la patrulla de Minos de California. Weather headlines for today, yes. Welcome to the Revenue Generator Podcast, an I Hear Everything production. In this podcast, you'll hear how industry leaders integrate sales, marketing, product, and customer success into a single business unit with a common goal of optimizing their revenue cycle. We'll unearth how innovators integrate data, technology, people, and processes to expedite demand generation and increase recurring revenue. Sit back, tune in, and get ready to meet a member of the Revenue Generation. Here's the host of the Revenue Generator podcast, the CMO of Lean Data, Doug Bell. Welcome to the Revenue Generator podcast, where we members of the Revenue Generation share solutions for how you can integrate your business to optimize revenue. I'm your host and the CMO of Lean Data, Doug Bell. And today, we're going to be talking about the disappearing traditional sales process. Joining us is Chad Pulaski, who is the VP of Strategic Opportunity at Griffin AI which provides the only end-to-end sales acceleration platform with a carrier-grade network infused with business intelligence and AI. The Griffin One platform enables companies to onboard reps faster, improve top-of-funnel activity, accelerate deals through the funnel, streamline customer onboarding, and mitigate compliance risk all in one solution. And today, Chad and I are going to be talking about why the traditional sales cycle is over, Okay, here's my conversation with Chad Pulaski, the VP of Strategic Opportunity at Griffin AI. Chad, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Doug. Lovely to be here. Appreciate the invite. All right. Well, I got to tell you, folks, you should know we have two Eagles fans on this podcast (laughs) today. We apologize if it breaks out into an Eagles conversation. Chad, do you think we can stay away from the topic? What do you think? You know, we can try, but preseason has just started and uh, the Eagles are looking pretty good this year. So if anybody wants to give us a little shout out of the Fly Eagles Fly, I'm all for it. I just lost all the Dallas Giants and uh, Commanders subscribers. Thanks for that, Chad. Good job. So, hey, we're talking about traditional sales cycle. And I have to say, this has sort of been in the zeitgeist for a while now. And this meaning the idea that, you know, the four-legged sales call, the eight-legged sales call, the idea that you have control over the buyer's journey that you, in fact, are in charge. Chad, that's all disappeared, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, if, if you go into any meeting today and, and you go to that first discovery call and, and you you take the traditional sales cycle where it's like, I'm 100% in charge, I'm going to take them to where they wa- where I want them to go, you know, you're going to lose before you even start. And the problem is, is that today, you know, everybody has so much information at their fingertips that our buyers coming to the table are just as knowledgeable as, as we are in the product, in the environment. And because of that, the, the sales cycle has completely changed. It's no longer just a salesperson's timeline. It's really adhering to the buyer's timeline and figuring out what is what are they trying to accomplish and when are they trying to accomplish it? Because, you know, they're, they're making it a lot easier on themselves by doing all their due diligence before they get to the call. So they're showing up with a heck of a lot more knowledge, and we understand that. It's not like we just discovered that there's an internet and websites and are gobsmacked that are showing up with all this information. We know that's been happening. Yeah. But it's their control over the sales cycle that feels like it's changed. We just talked about digital as the new front door. We get that piece. But what I want to do is just let's put in people's minds, what is the traditional sales cycle? What is the thing that before digital becoming the front door and the buyer having control over the selling process, what did that look like? 
Yeah, a lot of it was really around, for me, I felt like it was around product knowledge and industry knowledge that a sales rep could bring to the table. They were the experts. They were the ones saying, hey, if you don't do this, you're not going to accomplish this. And here's why. Here's what we see in the industry. This is where we're going towards. Let me educate you because Mr. Customer, you haven't been in this space. You've never been a part of this. That to me was the traditional sales cycle. And, you know, accompanied of that traditional sales cycle, you had a lot less people involved from the buyer's perspective as well. You know, you had people that could go out and you could sit across the table from them and you could hash out, you know, programs in a day or two or a few meetings and really figure out, okay, what is that budget that you're aligned to? Let me get you to that budget. By the way, I'm telling you how you're going to fix it and you have to take my word on it. To me, that's the traditional sales cycle. Okay. And I, I would throw in there as well, you know, the, it was somewhat typical to actually visit a client on site, right? Oh yeah. The human element, the ability to charm, right? That was a piece of it as well. And it felt a little bit more linear than it does today. Is that, is that a fair assessment? It was a little bit more predictable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, you could go in and, you know, I, I think gut feelings were a part of it a lot of time prior where people would go in and be like, I have a great rapport with that person. I really just need to get them to understand how I can help them. And then they were into our buying process, into our buying cycle. You know, that's why it was such a predictable buying process for our sellers and forecasting. Cause we could say, Hey, when we meet a person, when we build that rapport, it's usually 30, 60 days to get through a contract. Now that's why the whole buying cycle is completely different because I'm not the one leading that timeline. Yeah. Okay. Makes a ton of sense. And, and I throw some stats cause Hey, I'm a marketing guy and I have stats. They're floating around my head at all times. But one, one thing that stood out to me that I recently read about was quota attainment, the average quota attainment. The folks over at Exactly are sitting on a mountain of data, and occasionally they issue reports. And they, I think it was, I'm going to, I might misquote this slightly, but I believe it was the average B2B sales quota attainment in 2021 was 61%, right? So if we're talking about evidence that in fact, the sales cycle, the sales cycle has changed dramatically, we can just point to quota attainment. And I would guess that, I don't know what you think on this front, but I would guess that the folks that are you know meeting that quota attainment in other words, above the 61% likely are recognizing some of the changes we're about ready to talk about. So talk to me about the buying journey and who's in control. How much of that has changed and who's in control? Yeah, you know, the, the interesting part about it, and, and I really think, you know, the way that every leader looks at it will be to try to input their methodology. You know, the sales methodology is really important, but I think the underlying factor of all the methodologies is you're coming out with the same data, just using different verbiage or different steps to get that data. And I think the problem is, is that we're, we're trying to say, hey, we know what complicated deals look like. We know what information looks like. If you have all of these details checked off, you should be able to adhere to our sales cycle or sales motion. And I think if you take a step back and you unravel that a little bit, the difficulty becomes that it's no longer a single pronged salesperson. So when you're going into these large enterprises or even smaller businesses, but that are very cost conscientious or, you know, in the SaaS world, they're looking at their software and they're trying to figure out, I don't want just a deal for a year. I want a five-year, 10-year program that I don't have to rip and replace. It's a lot different for that buying cycle. And that's why they have taken so much control away from the seller because there's so many people involved in a simplistic sale. So it's no longer just, hey, I'm selling to an end user and they're buying it. It's, 
if I have the end user and they have buy in on my product, they've probably done research and they're looking at three or four others. And then they bring in their boss. Then their boss brings in their technical person. And the problem that you run into is by the time you're done a sales cycle where you feel you're in charge, they have six, seven people sitting at a table all with their own separate timelines. And that's the most difficult thing to overcome because now you're looking for what is that predictive notion in their time frame that's going to make them move forward quicker? Or when does that project kick off because they have very stringent timelines because so many people are involved? So we have the term used to be demand unit, right? We have these demand units that are driving the sales cycle. And it sounds like even for smaller businesses, it's not uncommon to have demand unit actually dictating what's going on. So that's one thing that's sort of destroyed the linear buyer's journey. It's not about yep. one person's ability to be charmed or one person's ability to navigate and understand product or solution, what that's going to end up helping them or how it's going to end up helping them. But really, we're talking about buying committees. We also had the factor of people being in a place where they have a lot of choice. And I feel like that's what makes B2B SaaS so great in many ways is that, guess what? If your vendor that you're kicking out the door is the only person out there, then you're not going to get that service. But in SaaS, there's usually six or seven or 10 vendors out there. So the competition's fierce and their choices are high. How much is that influencing, you think, the complexity in the sales cycle and the difficulty of managing it as the seller? Yeah, I think they go hand in hand. And, and I think the problem that, that sales reps have today just in general, and, and sales leaders as well, is people are a lot of times single-threaded in an opportunity. And for me, I think one of the biggest things that you can do to increase your ability to close more opportunities to achieve higher quota is to get away from that single threat. Because people always say, the higher you go, the better off you're at. Well, that's absolutely true. But the other thing too is if you have one person that you're trying to convince and they have a committee underneath them, you're doing yourself a disservice by not finding out what each thing that's important to that person would be to drive that business forward. So for me, you know, the, the difficulty is also the thing that helps you achieve more. So the difficulty is getting to each one of those individuals, but the way that you are better off in every opportunity and make sure you never get stuck is by not being single threaded. So I think it kind of goes hand in hand. Yeah, it feels like we've got, depending on how you're tackling this, either a virtuous cycle or a very destructive cycle, right? So that, that we talked about how the demand units, the committee approach are creating a lot more complex in the sales cycle, because at the end of the day, we're dealing with people's wants and needs and desires and positional strength, right? As determining whether or not the sale is going to go through, at least for the buyer. And at the same time, if you're not recognizing those demand units, you're going to fail. So the virtuous cycle is I recognize I have demand units I'm dealing with. I'm appropriately moving up the chain. I'm actually building out these teams and I'm influencing more than the person that showed up from a lead cycle standpoint. But the thing I'd really like to understand as well is how much of this shift and change is being reflected in terms of the way that sales organizations are thinking about their metrics. In other words, are they still lead-based in your experience? You're seeing folks that are going, actually, you know what? I need to make a transition because guess what? It's not a one-to-one -one sale. It would be more, say, opportunity-based or more demand unit-based. Yeah, you know, that's a fantastic question, Doug. And, and it's a really interesting one when you, when you think about it because, you know, for me, you can cut and dice metrics any which way that you want to try to prove out what you're looking for at your end goal. And I think the problem that you have is we get so... I would say we, we get so focused or singular focused on a specific KPI that we lose sight of how one KPI 
actually changes another one that we might not be looking at. So, you know, if I'm thinking about a sales cycle or sales motion or just sales in general, I could be looking at the end of the quarter being a sales leader and be like, oh my gosh, I got to focus on this KPI because I got to achieve this quota and I got to retire that. And I want to, you know, do X, X, and X to hit my goals. But then the next month comes around and all of a sudden my mind shift changes. And now I'm solely focused on increasing top of funnel opportunities because I want more opportunities to close out towards the end of the, end of the quarter. I think the change actually needs to be more of a focus on, you know, as I'm going through these sales cycles and I take, you know, five to 10 at each individual rep, and we're looking at those five to 10 that have the best chance to close. What are those predictive indicators or what are those leading indicators that are occurring in the conversations and how do I replicate them? Because that's the important piece that we don't always focus on because we're going to say, okay, how many opportunities do I need to open in order to have conversations to move it in late stage in order from the late stage to go to a closed opportunity rather than focusing on, okay, here's my eight to 10 that we really qualified and overqualified and we have the right people, they have a right reason that they want to buy our product. We understand what their sales cycle is. Now, why are they going to buy or why aren't they going to buy? And then focus on those indicators. I think it, it's a little bit different when you do that because you're flipping the mindset of the leader, but also your sales organization on what you're focusing on. Makes a ton of sense. Talk to me a bit more about the buyer because we have talked a bit about how the buyer is controlling the buyer journey as much as anybody else. Why is it they have so much power these days? Is, is it that digital window and that information that they have that they didn't have before? What's happening? Is it competition? Like, what are you seeing out there that's causing them to have control? Yeah, I think it's a little of both. I mean, you know, you, you said it best earlier when the conversation, when you talked about that most buyers have six, seven different people that can do the same thing or go through it. So I think that's one area that you have just all this competition out there that goes through it. I think a second item is user experience. So if, if I'm a user and I'm, and I'm a buyer and I look at it and I'm like, hey, I bought this product before. I know it works. I know how it works. My experience is going to be easy. I'm leaning towards that because I want something that I don't have to think about every day and have to manipulate and go through it. And then I think the third thing that's really affecting us is that, you know, in each stage of that buyer journey, when they're adding more people to it, they have a different flair of what they're trying to do. And a lot of times you might get a lower level person that you build that great rapport. And then all of a sudden here comes sourcing or here comes procurement where they don't really care what you do They're They care about how much money and I, am I saving? So that's, that's where the buyer journey has changed a little bit because each thing and each item kind of dictates what their focus is on that. And it's not necessarily your product or the relationship you built. It could be outlying factors that are just important to that group that you're talking to at that point in time. We're going to reach into tomorrow's topic a bit here, Chad, but I do feel like there's a piece I want to understand what's sort of what your experience is here. And I'm going to set it up with a little bit of bias in it, but to say that how much of this is really based on a history of bad sales practice that we B2B sellers have been pushing out there. In other words, have we created a jaded audience that we need to figure out how to unwind later on? Yeah, you know, I think we we have done ourselves a disservice over the years, but I don't I don't know that it was everyone and it may have been the it may have been two factors. And the way that I look at it is two ways. One, it may have been like, hey, I'm just trying to hit a number, so I'm going to throw whatever discount I can to you at the end of the month. And then the buyers are like, well, is your product worth X or is it worth Y? 
And if you said it was worth X, why am I now paying Y and the lower rate? And then if I go back tomorrow, why is it not going to be worth Y and worth X? So I think those, those Hail Mary plays that everybody makes kind of does ourselves a disservice because we're undervaluing the product that we're providing to the market. And the biggest thing that you have to be as a sales rep is you have to believe in your product in order to sell it. Because you never want to sell something that you yourself wouldn't want to use. So I think that's where that trust factor comes in from a sales rep and that we're building back up. The second thing that I think we did a disservice as well comes more on the leadership and coaching perspective. I think as we expand our sales force and we expand just the amount of people that we're bringing in, we give them these metrics and these onboarding programs where it's like, okay, you have to get through these lessons today. You have to be making this amount of phone calls tomorrow and go through it. And then by month three, instead of making 15 dials a day, you need to make 70 dials a day. The problem is that if you're not enhancing their skill set or their product knowledge or their industry knowledge, all you're getting is a number. And I can, I can ask for 15 to 60, but if they're making 60 dials and they're worthless 60 dials, what is the point of that? I don't want to manage that metric. I want to manage the individual to get them better. And we as leaders have done ourselves a disservice in that atmosphere that we haven't gotten the reps better. We've just demanded more. So Chad, what you're saying is it's uh, management's fault. <laughs> well, maybe in most cases, but I do sell to sales leaders. So I'm a little biased in that sense <laughs> that I got to have that fear, uncertainty and doubt to make them a little bit better in, in saying, hey, why Griffin? Of course, this is why. <laughs> We're going to dig into just exactly how we can rebuild trust. I think it's a really good point that we need to think about, folks, because over time, it feels like we have eroded that trust. And by the way, Check back in in five years. I'll tell you, folks, the winners and losers suss out really quickly in SaaS. If you can't catch up to the trend, you're pretty much out. Chad, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, no, greatly appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Okay, that wraps up this episode of the Revenue Generator Podcast. Thanks to Chad Pulaski, VP of Strategic Opportunity at Griffin AI for joining us. In part two of this interview, which we'll publish tomorrow, Chad and I are going to dig in and talk about the way sales reps can reinstate trust. If you can't wait until our next episode and would like to learn more about Chad, you can always find a link to his LinkedIn profile in our show notes, or you can visit his company website at griffin.ai. Just one link in our show notes I want to tell you about. If you didn't have a chance to take notes while listening to this podcast, head over to revgenpod.com, where we have summaries of all of our episodes and contact information for our guests. You can subscribe to our weekly newsletter, apply to be a speaker on the Revenue Generator podcast, or you can even share your revenue generation questions, which we'll answer live on our show. Of course, you can always reach out on social media. Our handle is at RevGenPod on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Sorry, no TikTok. Or you can contact me directly. My handle is Market Advocate. If you haven't subscribed yet and want a daily stream of RevGen strategies in your podcast feed, we're going to publish an episode every day during the work week. So hit that subscribe button in your podcast app and we'll be back in your feed in the next business day. Okay, that's all for today. But until next time, keep cranking because the revenue isn't going to generate itself. 